welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Sit back and enjoy stories and insight from sports icons from all over. Are you kidding? This is unbelievable! Touchdown Bombers! Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Today's guest is an all-around sports caster. He does NBA on TNT, does play-by-play for the Brooklyn Nets on the Yes Network as well as play-by-play for the NFL on CBS, college basketball, all-around great guy, Ian Eagle. Thank you for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for for the moniker, all-around great guy. I'll just take that. I'll put that on a business card and, and away we go. So Ian, growing up, you were no stranger to the world of entertainment and being able to use your voice as your parents were both very involved with your mother being a singer and your dad being involved in doing acting. Yep. How did sports come into the picture for you growing up in your childhood, knowing that there was this influence from your mom and dad? Yeah, Matthias, uh, sports was not a, a big part of my household through my parents. My mom had very little interest. My father passing tangential interest at best. And it was really something that I came to on my own. Probably by the age of six, I realized that I was gravitating towards baseball more than anything else. I grew up in Queens, New York, 10 minutes from Shea Stadium. That's where the Mets played their home games. And then uh, obviously when I discovered football, the Jets were playing there as well. Uh, New York was a hotbed for basketball, for hockey. Uh, So every year my interest level would grow and I just started burying myself in the minutiae in stats and storylines and biographies, anything that I could get my hands on, I would just throw myself into baseball encyclopedia, baseball digest, you name it. And again, it would grow based on the season, based on the year. And my dad and mom embraced it. Even though it wasn't something that they were all that familiar with, they uh, backed me because I showed an interest in it. I don't know if they were humoring me, but at the time, it, it felt as if uh, they were giving me the stamp of approval to to really uh, immerse myself in it. So uh, it it wasn't based on anything passed down from a previous generation. It was really more my own curiosity. And by probably seven or eight, I had a pretty good understanding of what I wanted to do for a career. So taking that interest in sports and then figuring out a way to, to make it a, a daily occurrence for myself. You mentioned baseball growing up in, in Queens, New York, New York was an extreme hotbed for sports, especially in the time that you were a young child. Did you have any favorite athletes or players or coaches that you looked up to when you first started watching sports? The Mets were not very good. So it was a very humbling time to go into school in 1977, 1978. And all of your friends are Yankee fans and they're winning multiple world championships and the Mets are winning 60 games. That's what was going on. But they were my team. So I learned at a very young age that uh, you just don't get anything handed to you. If you're a sports fan, you, you got to stick with your team and blood, sweat, tears, you name it. So in 1986, my freshman year of college, when the Mets won 
the World Series, it felt like a religious experience in many ways. But in the mid to late 70s, this was not a very good Mets team. I still found interest in Lee Mazzilli and John Stearns and Doug Flynn and Lenny Randall and Willie Montanez and Craig Swan and Pat Zachary. It was that group. Again, not high achievers in MLB, but enough for me to have my imagination captured and become a legitimate fan. As you got older, you mentioned around seven or eight that you knew sports was where you wanted to be in terms of your career. And you went to college in Syracuse. So when was the marriage between using your voice to do play-by-play and to be able to animate a game come into play to combine with your love for sports? Because was it really sports casting right from seven or eight or how did that evolve once you got towards college? Yeah, it, it was an early seed planted in my head that at seven or eight, that there was somebody out there that got to go to the games for free. That, that just seemed like a novel idea in and of itself. And if I would go to games either at Chase Stadium or at Madison Square Garden, I would notice the broadcasters. I would immediately turn my attention to the booth. And I was curious, what are they doing up there? Bob Murphy was the play-by-play voice of the Mets at that point on radio, longtime voice. And I heard him on the radio. And then I would find myself transfixed watching him instead of watching the game to the point where my father would say, like, what are you doing? The game's over here. You're looking up there. And it was a pretty clear indicator that that's where my interests really were were most focused. And then eventually with uh, football and basketball, Marv Albert in New York was doing so much. So it was very easy to imagine yourself having that kind of job because he was doing the Knicks. He was doing the Rangers. He was doing football on the weekends, boxing. He was hosting baseball. He was doing the local news at six and 11 o'clock. He was working around the clock and he had this dream job. So that, that was a way to, to dream a little bit and to try to visualize what could be one day. And that was early. That was not once I got to college. That was seven, eight, nine years old where it wasn't just a passing thought. It was something that I truly believed I could accomplish, probably blind faith more than anything else, and a little naivete, and backing from my parents, who were very positive and very encouraging. And that was very empowering to know, even at a young age, that they believed in me and basically told me if that's what I wanted to do, I could do it. The influence from your parents to really support you and allow you to grow and blossom in your career has no doubt a very huge impact on the success you've been able to achieve. And with your son now doing play-by-play broadcasting and being in the industry as well. I'm sure that you've passed on a lot of that same supportiveness to him to help him to grow and blossom into the career that he wants to build. Yeah, very much so, Matthias. Uh, He showed an interest probably closer to the 14, 15-year-old age bracket. And I was encouraging, but I, I certainly was not pushing him towards this. My wife and I, uh, who have been together since we both were at Syracuse University, so she knows all about what my dreams were and what my uh, 
manifestations might be. She was on board, but there were times along the way where she would ask me, like, do you think he could do it? Could this be a real thing for him? This was not an automatic. We just didn't assume because he wanted to do this, he'd be able to do it. There still has to be the marriage of an interest, the preparation, and the performance. And the performance aspect is a wild card. Uh, Until you get in the moment, until the microphone's on, until you have the headset, until the camera is rolling, you don't know. You don't really know. So when he got to Syracuse, he looked at other schools. He determined that Syracuse was the best fit for him. When he got there and he started making tapes and sending me some of his stuff occasionally, uh, it, it wasn't a yellow legal pad of notes. It was usually a quick thought here and an evaluation there, something to keep an eye on for the next time he did it, a tip, a reminder, and let him go figure it out also. Uh, ultimately, you can't do it for them. It's got to be them. But even with all of that said, and he's been really fortunate, he's had some opportunities, he's taken advantage of them, and he's done very well. When he's on the air, it's a completely different emotion for me compared to when I'm on the air. When I'm on the air, I'm in control. I know the work I put in. I know when the light goes on that I'm ready. When he's on the air, it's a feeling of pride, but also helplessness because I can't control it. It's all him at that point. So whatever nerves that any parent would feel about their kid in any walk of life, I feel those and I feel them tenfold because I just know what goes into this and I know how hard and challenging it is. So uh, needless to say, we're really, really proud of the kind of person he is and the kind of broadcaster he's developing into. You and your son had an opportunity to be on a broadcast together in between the likes of a, an NBA great and Chauncey Billups. You talk about that <laughs> feeling of not knowing what's going to happen because you're helpless and really not in control of his performance and like a nervous parent. But when you're in that position alongside with him, how does that change the feelings that are within you in terms of you being able to do your job, but also knowing in the back of your mind as a father that you really want to make sure that he's doing his best? Yeah. Is it difficult to balance those two emotions? It's not. Once you get into the moment and you know it's you and him, and in this case, it was Chauncey. We've had a few other occasions where we've done some stuff together. I feel really confident based on our relationship and our rapport that Everything we do off the air translates on the air. We're very close. In many ways, we could finish each other's sentences because we're wired in a very similar fashion. We have very similar senses of humor. We have a similar look. So you put all that together and you blend it. It's not that tough to fill two minutes of TV or five minutes of TV or 35 minutes on a podcast. It's just our natural back and forth. So those moments, I'm not nervous at all. I know he'll come through. He knows I'll come through. That's never an issue. It's really when I'm a viewer, when I'm sitting in a hotel room and I'm watching him do a game or an event, or I'm driving in the car and I'm listening to him on the radio. That's when some of the angst enters the equation because now I'm separate from it. I'm detached. And when you're detached, you're truly putting that, that, 
role of being a viewer or a listener and being a dad. When you're a participant, it's a little different because you can guide it. You might be able to, to lean it one way. He can handle himself with or without me. I've learned that. But if I'm sitting there next to him now, we could just look at one another and know where we want to go next with this. What was that feeling like the first time that you guys got to do a broadcast together? It was surreal more than anything else. Uh, I think for my wife and I uh, to have been through this with my career and see the different stages of just trying to get on the air and then trying to get consistent reps as an on-air commentator and then getting a chance to do play-by-play, doing radio, getting the opportunity to do TV, doing it locally, getting a chance to do it at the network level. These are steps along the way. And you and your partner, my my wife has been uh, just an incredible supporter and and believer from, from day one. You do it together. When it's your son, it's a completely different emotion because you just imagine back and think back to him as, as a baby and as a toddler and as a preteen, as a teenager and as a high schooler and as a college student. And all of those memories come flooding back to you. And you think to yourself, it's just natural. You're like, how, how the hell did this happen? When did he become an adult? When did he get to a point where he could do this and handle this on his own? So uh, that that's still probably the most surreal part that he and I got to do the same game. He was still in college at the time. He was a junior. It was a Syracuse Miami game. It aired on CBS. He was doing it for the student station down uh, in Miami for the Syracuse station. And I was in the midst of many other assignments. You know, that's the other thing about my my schedule is it's nonstop. It's a lot of games. It's a lot of cities in a non-pandemic setup. It's a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. So it's oftentimes hard to just stop, pause, take it all in. You're just running from place to place to place to place. Your preparation is team to team to team to team. Your partners vary. So you're just trying to compartmentalize and do your job well and lock in. And in a moment like that, I just had the duality of being on the air. I was working with Bill Raftery, who is one of my closest friends and a tremendous partner. And then the other side of just being a dad and hoping that Noah knows how to set up the equipment. Like literally, those are the thoughts that that come into your head. Will they get on the air? Like that was, that was my first thought. Anything that happened beyond that was bonus. The fact that they took a little segment of his play-by-play. I didn't know that was coming. They asked us to do an interview pregame. That thing happened to go viral when it was the least thing that, that we expected. We were just messing around for three minutes before the show began. And it was one take and that was it. It wasn't like, oh, well, let's do that again. Let's change that. It was boom, boom, boom. We smiled. He went off to his broadcast area, I went off to mine, and we did our respective jobs. You guys have a great relationship on the camera as well as off camera. And combined with everything that we've talked about so far, I want to ask you, Ian, what's your favorite thing about being a dad? 
Oh, man. You know, I also have a daughter who is two years younger than Noah, Matthias, and uh, she is doing really well in the social media world, which I know very little about, but she has a very large following on TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat for fashion. Just graduated Syracuse in May. And I am beaming with pride when one of her posts, which recently last week, one of them had over 6 million views. Another one yesterday had a million four views. That just fills me with uh, complete joy that both my kids are doing something that they love, something that they enjoy. Uh, the goal is happiness in this life. And every journey and route is different. And it's circuitous for a lot of people. So when you can determine pretty early and recognize the things that give you joy and give you happiness, and you can go and actually do them, then you're really ahead of the game. So for both of them, the fact that they're doing something that they like and, and something that they wake up excited about, that's a, a huge plus in this world. So that's what really gives me the most pride. That's the best part of, of being a dad is seeing that happiness through the lens of your children, you know, people that you've committed time and nurturing and energy and money and all the things that go into raising a child. Uh, but more than anything else, that they're both really down to earth, good people, kind kind people, approachable people, well-adjusted people. That's, that's what you root for. And for my wife and I, that's, that's all we were focused on is produce a really good person. When you put them out into the world, although the world can be cruel, uh, we understand that it, it can be, you are in control of your place in it. And to me, it's not that difficult to try to put good into the world. It's much easier if you turn your brain off and say, uh, I'm just going to be good all the time. I don't have to question how I treated that person, how I reacted, how I answered that person. If you just view life that way, then you really don't hit the pillow at the end of the night worrying too much about what you did and how you conducted yourself and how you treated somebody because you know that your default mode is positivity. And, and that's really not to be too cliche or, or cavalier or corny. To me, that's really what it's all about. Well, that's very well said, Ian, especially when you look at it from the perspective of a parent, wanting happiness for your kids is just, that's what more could you really ask for? And yep. when you look at the parallel between your childhood with knowing that sports made you so happy and loving the stats and how supportive your parents were, it just continues to breed a positive cycle and you can really see in your work and any game you do, whether it's college or professional football, baseball, basketball, that you just feel an immense amount of joy and happiness when you're calling games and all the fans who are listening and watching can always tell that as well. So I must ask, you've had many iconic calls in NBA, NFL, NCAA. What are some of the calls in your mind that stick out the most where you were the most excited or felt the most internal <laughs> jubilation, even though I'm sure there's many that what are the ones that jump off the top of your mind? Yeah, it would be so hard, uh, Matthias. I, I appreciate your kind words more than anything else, because that that truly 
is the goal for me. I'm genuinely happy to be at the game that I'm doing. And the authenticity is what connects with an audience in my mind. Eventually, audience members figure out whether someone is real or if it's artificial or if they're playing a part or if they're being robotic. I believe in consistency. Don't get me wrong. I do think in broadcasting, especially with play-by-play, consistency is a huge part of it. Can you bring the same energy, enthusiasm, preparation, insight, entertainment value? Can you do that every game, game in and game out? And that's what I aspire to. It doesn't matter if it's a Tuesday night and it's the Nets playing the Sacramento Kings or if it's a Sunday afternoon and the Kansas City Chiefs are playing the Tennessee Titans. To me, it's, it's all the same. Your name is on the broadcast. You're associated with it in some way. Someone's watching the game or listening to the game, and they've never heard your work. They don't know you. You can't assume that they do. So they're going to form an opinion on a very small sample size. And if in that particular moment, you're not at your best, or you're taking it for granted, or you're cutting corners, then they'll walk away from that experience with uh, the possibility of not having a very high opinion of your work. And it's important to me that people get my best on a daily basis. As far as favorite calls, I mean, look, we could go through every sport and, and I've been really fortunate to be in a position to call a bunch of big games. Uh, in addition to the ones that I do for the outlets that you mentioned, for many years, I was doing a separate feed for large events like the NCAA championship, the NBA finals, and it would be a world feed. So you toss those in with Michael Jordan against the Utah Jazz, his final shot as a member of the Chicago Bulls against Brian Russell and the Jazz to win the championship. I had that call on a world feed. Duke against Butler, national championship game in Indiana. Had that call on a, on a world feed. So uh, you mix it all together between radio, TV, uh, tennis, golf, track and field. I was doing internet broadcasting when the Masters uh, decided to expand their range and CBS brought me in to do work for DirecTV and CBSSports.com. Ended up doing that for for five or six years. Uh, I, you know, I always think of it the the last year that I did it, we would stay in people's homes. They would rent their homes. There just was not enough hotel space in Augusta to house everybody. Oh, wow! So, a few of the years I would get you know, the short end of the stick, depending upon who my roommates were and how many years they've been doing it and what role they had at CBS Sports. So the last year I did it, uh, I was staying in a 13-year-old girl's room and there was a Justin Bieber life-size poster on the ceiling. And I would fall asleep at night with Justin Bieber staring back at me. And finally on the last night, and I had a Jack and Jill bathroom, which is a bathroom that you share with another room separated by two doors, your door to the bathroom and then their door to the bathroom. And one of the the other broadcasters I, I was working with, he would stay out till about you know, 2, 2.30 in the morning. Then he would come back and we shared the bathroom and he would gargle very loudly at 2 or 2.30 in the morning. I'm not a gargler by nature, but I, I guess some people like to gargle. And it would wake me up every 
every early morning when he gargled. And it was this confluence of him gargling, me staring at a Justin Bieber poster, life-size, just above my bed, and sleeping in the room of a 13-year-old girl that I realized, okay, maybe, maybe I'm good with the Masters. Like I can, I can maybe not do the Masters anymore. That was the last year that I ended up doing it. So all these other events that I've been able to call, it's uh, truly a gift when, when I look back on it. And I think there are some big events still to come. I don't think I'm done by, by any stretch. I think uh, there could be a call that you're alluding to that I haven't even made yet that one day will go down as, as either most memorable or one that really sticks out in my career. An athlete that that mantra reminds me of is the great Tom Brady. He always talks about, we're not done. We're still here. Even <laughs> yeah. though he's got seven Super Bowl rings, number eight might be on the way this year. If not ne- this year, maybe next year. Oh, no team has ever won the Super Bowl home before. Well, who's checking that first box? Tom Terrific. Who's throwing that touchdown pass that no one's done before? It's touchdown Tom. And the list goes on and on. And I, I want to ask you about, an interaction you've had with him because uh, I was doing a little bit of research and found a story from another podcast. You were talking about calling a game in new England and Tom Brady coming in in the morning. You had a, a, maybe a a little bit of a sleep, like you would, you just described at the masters and wanted to give yourself a little bit of energy. So you had a a very tasty chocolate frosted Dunkin' Donut in one hand and you're not a coffee drinker. So a Pepsi might've given you that jolt of energy and who, who walks in the door of course, the man who has the most strict diet regiment in all of Foxborough, and it's Tom Brady walks in and sees you with a donut and Pepsi in hand. Can you talk a little bit about what that interaction was like and why it was just so startling to see him walk in the room at that time? Yeah, I don't want to over-dramatize it. He crushed me, and, and I get it, but he did it in a fun manner. It just was, it was poor timing. Everything just everything went the wrong way for me. The lack of sleep, the enticement of a donut just staring you in the face, the idea that I needed a little jolt so I convinced myself it was okay to have a large Pepsi at nine in the morning, which I really would not do under normal circumstances. And then the fact that maybe the the most health conscious football player of all time walks in the door as these events are happening simultaneously. Half a donut, Pepsi in the other hand. I look like a mess. I've had little to no sleep. Uh, bedhead probably at that point for me still. And just boom, complete convergence of events. And you know, Tom, who is really no joke, a tremendous guy. Like I can't say enough good things about my interactions with him through the years professional, but as the years went on, the personal side, he loosened up a bit and recognized that everything that was done in those meetings uh, were done with a goal in mind to do a better job on the games, to humanize him in some way, to tell a good story, and to give more insight. And he got that. Peyton Manning got it too. Uh, Through the years, I, I just thought he was fantastic in those production meetings. Uh, he got injured with the Colts. And it was the only time that I saw him not as sharp 
in the meetings. The next time we had him, there was a little more trepidation from him. He got to Denver. There was this new chapter. And I think he was trying to figure some things out. He was still great in the meeting, but it was the first time that I I saw another side of Peyton. And then eventually, look, they win a Super Bowl. He caps off his incredible career. Uh, but that was, I think, very humbling for him, getting injured, not feeling invincible. Prior to that, there was an air of invincibility around him because he was. He was really durable. And then the neck issues derailed him, sent his career in a different direction. And as we know, he still ended it in, in a storybook fashion. But uh, certain guys really stand out in those meetings, Matthias. And it's not surprising that those are the kinds of individuals that have translated it on the field as great leaders and those that can problem solve in the moment and make the most of situations. Both of those guys uh, clearly have done that over the course of their respective careers. And mentioning Peyton Manning as well, I think that his relationship with Tom, as well as the dynamic that he has with him and also with his brother, Eli, yeah. make for a compelling broadcast, maybe almost as compelling as the ones that you and Dan have done for years on CBS together with the Manning cast on Monday night. I want to know a little bit about your thoughts on like having players do the commentary during the games, because it's a new thing that hasn't really been done as much before as, as in 2021. It's awesome. Uh, the only question is, can you create what the Manning brothers have? There's a reason why it works is because they are in complete comfort zones, each of them. They know the other one so well, they can go places that others cannot go, and they can bust chops. They can make it real. So the idea is wonderful, but you got to find two highly insightful, highly accomplished athletes that are so comfortable with one another that the lines blur, that the conversations they would be having off the air are the ones that they're having on the air. I think that's what people are attracted to. They feel like they're exposed to something that they never had a chance to see before, which is inside the minds of Peyton and Eli Manning when watching a football game. So you could take any two players and put them in that situation. But if it's not compelling, then people will tune out. The fact of the matter is Peyton is a fantastic storyteller. He's got a great sense of humor. Eli is so underrated in, in his humor and his ability to go back at Peyton and maybe one-up him. You know, having interviewed both of them, they're both great guys. But if you take a regular broadcaster and put them with Peyton or Eli, you're not going to get the same electricity. This to me is a perfect storm. Uh, the NBA tried it with uh, NBA players only. Turner did that for a few years and some of it was pretty good and some of it was not. And by their own decision, they, they made uh, the call to go in a different direction, but it's been attempted. It's just hard to perfect. If you're going to copycat it right now, you better find the right two that create interesting, intriguing dialogue. Well, that's a great point, Ian, because you look at the relationship that they've had being both professional athletes, playing against each other, playing in the same era, both playing the same position, 
everything that mixes into their chemistry is shown on the broadcast. And you're right. Like when the NBA tried it, it's not just a thing you can control C control V easily to every single sport because you need that perfect storm. And I think that's why they're so successful. Now, as we get towards the end of our time on today's episode, I want to ask you a few quick wrap up questions to have a little more fun. We rapid fire before we part for today. Let's do it. What's your favorite sport to play in your pastime? Uh, in my youth, uh, my my best sport was tennis. I was a high school tennis player, competitive tennis player, a pretty high achiever for my level in high school and prior as a junior player. Uh, that was that was my best sport. Is it the sport I enjoyed most? I'm not sure. It was the sport that I excelled at. So I probably enjoyed it because I was excelling, but I loved playing baseball as a kid. I was solid, good second baseman, short guy on the team, lead off, draw a lot of walks, always field my position well, but there were limits and I knew there were going to be limits, especially when kids started throwing curveballs where I was like, whoa, what's happening here? So uh, eventually I, I gravitated towards tennis. Who's your favorite, who's your favorite actor or actress? Wow. Uh, it's shifted over the years. I'm a huge TV movie guy. I would say the one that I find consistently now intriguing, whatever role he or she plays is uh, Brian Cranston. Uh, I've been just blown away with his range his ability to do comedy, his ability to do drama, uh, his ability as a chameleon to change his look. Uh, just to me, he's he's one of the best guys doing it right now. And the final question is, and on that note, three favorite movies and three favorite TV shows. Doesn't have to be in any particular order. Mm. I mean, we could go current, we could go former. There are just so many. I have... I have a Rolodex in my brain of 70s and 80s TV and and cinema. So it's hard to separate myself from that if I'm choosing favorites, that whole genre, that Animal House, Stripes, Caddyshack, Fletch. You put any of those movies on, I'll watch them right now. But if you put the other guys on right now, I'd watch it start to finish and I'd laugh throughout. If you put Anchorman on right now, same deal. You're seeing what what types of movies I, I tend to, to focus on. Uh, I like comedies, a good drama, a good action movie. I'm into it. You give me Shawshank Redemption. I'll watch it right now. We'll sit back and watch it. Uh, but my, my default mode tends to be on the comedy side. And then TV shows of you know, the current group, uh, Better Call Saul has been genius. You know, I loved Breaking Bad. It's the same creator. It's the same set of writers, directors with some new ones added. They've taken the model and the blueprint and they've just perfected it. So I can't say it's better than Breaking Bad, but I can tell you that they've taken the look, the feel, the vibe, and they've somehow made it better, which I did not think was even possible. Uh, but to me, that's, that's right up there. There have been some good stuff, though, that has been produced. Of late, a show on HBO I recently watched called Hacks, which was tremendous. I really recommend that. A quick, easy 26 minutes an episode. 
eight or nine episodes, uh, really well done, really smart, a lot of smart television being made now. And I find myself streaming a lot of it because I'm on the road such a great deal. Uh, succession is, is something that I've been very much into and uh, I'm locked in every week. You know, Curb Your Enthusiasm is, is a guaranteed laugh-a-thon if you like uncomfortable comedy. So I'm in uh, knee deep, many shows, juggling, streaming, and uh, just trying to keep up. Well, maybe television is your calling, but you never know if sports could, the sports scene could change. And maybe, you know, you never get, <laughs> never know if you get into other types of television, all those comedies you, you named are amazing. And I've, I've seen very much of them. They're all super awesome and curb, especially super mm -hmm. underrated show. It's, it's fantastic. I've really enjoyed watching it with that. I want to thank you, Ian, for having been on today's episode. It was a great joy to be able to talk with you about your career, your life as a family man, as a father, as well as have some fun chatting sports, as well as about movies and TV. It was super tremendous. I really thank you so much for having joined me on today's episode. Yeah, Matthias, my, my pleasure. Really great to talk with you. If you want to go back and watch the movie Southpaw with Jake Gyllenhaal, I'm in that film. So if you watch it, I might get some kind of check in the mail for nine cents. Uh, but I do have a role pretty early in that movie as a reporter, very much uh, pushing the boundaries of my skills as an actor. I was reporter number two uh, in that film. So uh, I'll take whatever residuals I can get. Go rent it today. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to today's episode with play-by-play -play sportscaster all around for NFL and CBS, NBA on TNT, Yes Network for the Brooklyn Nets, NCAA, tennis, you name it. The man, good guy, all around, Ian Eagle. <laughs> First and goal from the one. This is it. Stiegel. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Check out our social media pages for more at huddleup underscore MB. For full audio, head over to Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For full video, head over to YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Tune in next week for another great episode. See you next time. If you're like most people, you strive to eat healthy as much as you can, but it gets really difficult when life gets in the way. We get busy, we're running around doing lots of things, it's hard. Being able to eat healthy on the go is super important more than ever now, and that's why I'm here to tell you about G2G Protein Bars. They're the best protein bar for eating healthy on the go. It's made with all natural ingredients, they're fresh, it tastes like homemade, but it's even better. G2G Bars have 18 grams of protein and are gluten-free. With eight different flavors, there's so many different things that you can enjoy about the great tastes of G2G bars and what they have to offer. They're fresh, healthy, and delicious. Make sure to get yours at g2gbar.ca or at your local retailer in Canada or the U.S.